0: Good morning. morning. A Bible expert once asked Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Which is the most important? Another Bible expert once asked him, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And each time Jesus answers by quoting Shema, from Deuteronomy 6, and by quoting the second greatest commandment from Leviticus 19. Would you stand, please, and let's dedicate our time together this morning before God by reaffirming our commitment to love God and love others in reciting Shema. Let's do the Hebrew first. You'll find it in the blue. We'll do the Hebrew responsively. I'll say a line, you say it back, and then we'll do the English together. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Ahad. Ve'ahavta et, et, et Adonai. Elohecha. 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 Behol Levavka. Ubahol Nafshaha. Ubahol meodeka. Ve'ahafta re'acha komocha. Amen. Together, please. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Please, you may be seated. Like our friend Nathan this morning, people have a need to be loved. We long to belong. The poet John Donne was correct when he wrote that, no man is an island. We want others to love, and we want others to love us. We crave love. We crave it by our very nature because a God who is love... Made us in his own image. In love, he made us to love and to be loved. He made us relational. People need to be loved, and we long to belong. Psychologist Abraham Maslow is perhaps best remembered for developing a hierarchy of human needs. You see Maslow's pyramid of human needs on the screen. Yes, I know, scary flashback for many of us to Psychology 101. <laughs> The idea pictured in the pyramid is that the higher level of human needs depend on, rest on, the lower ones being met. And as you can see, to love or to belong is a key human need. Maslow put the need of love or belonging in the middle of his pyramid, but he noted something very interesting. He said that a person's need for love is so strong that it can overcome even the needs below it. It's so strong That it might be more foundational, more foundational than even needs like air or food or water or personal security. A young woman battling anorexia, for example, risks even the needs of food and the security of health because she is even more desperately hungry for control and belonging. She is probably craving love and belonging Most of all, our need to be loved is very, very basic, and it's very, very strong. And if our need to be loved isn't met, it's devastating. A story is told of a soldier who was finally coming home after having fought in Vietnam. He called his parents from San Francisco. Mom and Dad, I'm coming home, but I have a favor to ask. I have a friend I'd like to bring home with me. Sure, they replied, we'd love to meet him. There's something you should know, the son continued. He was hurt pretty badly in the fighting. He stepped on a landmine and lost an arm and a leg. He has nowhere else to go, and I want him to come live with us. I'm sorry to hear that, son. Maybe we can help him find somewhere to live. No, Mom and Dad, I want him to live with us. Son, the father said, you don't know what you're asking. Someone with such a handicap would be a terrible burden on us. We have our own lives to live, and we can't let something like this interfere with our lives. I think you should just come home and forget about this guy. He'll find a way to live on his own. At that point, the son hung up the phone. The parents heard nothing more from him. A few days later, however, they received a call from the San Francisco police. Their son had died after falling from a building, they were told. The police believed it was suicide. The grief-stricken parents flew to San Francisco and were taken to the city morgue to identify the body of their son. They recognized him, but to their horror, they also discovered something they didn't know, their son had only one arm and one leg. Implicit in our need for love and belonging is a need to be loved as we are, one leg or two. No matter how beautiful, talented, strong, Intelligent, amazing we are or not. We long to be loved as we are. We long to be loved unconditionally. Our need to be loved and to belong is very basic and very strong, and if our need to be loved isn't met, it's devastating. I have little doubt that's a huge reason why our God, who is love, wants us to be all about love. When we love someone, we meet a very basic and deep need, and at the same time they see through our love that our God is indeed love, and indeed loves them. The homosexual community is a community crying out for unconditional love. Crying out to be loved as they are. And in our zeal sometimes, our zeal to be understood that we believe a homosexual lifestyle is a sin, we unfortunately shy away sometimes from the hard work of distinguishing in our hearts sinner from sin. We struggle with true empathy for people who are struggling with sin, which seems to me the height of hypocrisy since we all struggle with sin. Especially relational sin, which if you think about it is really every type of sin. All sin affects either our relationship with God or others or both. In any event, one factor at least that contributes to people's struggle with sin is our desperate need and desire to be loved as we are. To be loved unconditionally. We struggle most, it seems to me, when that need and desire isn't being met. And as the song goes, when that need or desire isn't being met, we go looking for love often in all the wrong places. There is, however, someone who does love us as we are, who loves us unconditionally. There is a right place to look for and find this love. His name is God. So we have a God who is love and we desperately need and want love and yet we sometimes remain distant from God. Holding away at arm's length the very love we need and crave so deeply. Why is that? I wonder if it's because we don't completely trust it. We don't really believe that God loves us as we are. Last week we looked at one reason we might struggle with trusting God's love. Maybe we struggle with that because of the pain that is still present in our lives even after we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. This morning I'd like to look at another reason. We may find it difficult to trust God's love. I think we struggle with that when we suspect that God's love is conditional. When we suspect God doesn't love us truly as we are. And it's not all that hard to see where we might get that idea about God's love or any love, the idea that love is conditional. Our culture quite sincerely preaches conditional love. Measure up, and you'll be loved and accepted. If you don't measure up, well, keep trying. You'll only get what you earn and therefore deserve. The beautiful, the strong, the rich, the talented all get ahead in our culture. They're the ones who receive all the accolades, all the glory, if you will. And if you can't compete, well, then you're not worth as much. Such is the ugly side, the ugly risk of a system built on competition. If you win, great. But if you don't, if you can't even compete, well then ouch, not so great. In fact, devastating. Love in our culture often feels very conditional. And so perhaps our experience of getting burned by conditional love from the world makes us suspicious that God's love is conditional too. What about church and our families for that matter? Shouldn't the church step up and witness that God's love is unconditional, that God's God loves people as they are? Yeah, she should. And she does often. But does she all the time? Do we, West Bowles, here and at home? Or when we too sometimes fail at unconditional love, Do we leave people with the impression that before they are truly loved by the church or us, they need to first measure up somehow? Don't bring that in here. Despite what our experience in our culture or even in church and our families may sometimes suggest, I'm here to tell you that God is emphatic in the Bible, that He loves people as they are. He loves you as you are. Paul makes this precise point in Romans 5 when he writes to the early church in Rome. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, helpless, weak, Christ died for the ungodly, the rebellious. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates He proves His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul goes on to say that while we were God's enemies, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through Jesus' death. While we were God's enemies. So there's no condition to God's love since He gave His Son to die for us while we were of no use whatever to Him. God knew. He knew the love we needed and desired even before we did, even before we were born. And so He gave it. And that's so just like God. To notice our greatest and deepest needs, it's just like God to notice our need for unconditional love. He's there when we're burned and hurting by the conditional love of the world. And even the church, unfortunately, sometimes seems to express. God is there with His unconditional love. You recall, in Genesis, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. And so he worked seven years for Rachel's dad, Laban, in order to get her. The Bible says, those seven years seemed like only a few days to Jacob because he loved Jacob so much. Oh, so romantic. And so the wedding day appears and everyone parties and feasts. But then when it's time to consummate the marriage, some monkey business goes on. Laban substitutes Rachel's older sister Leah into the wedding chamber, and a marriage between Jacob and Leah is consummated before Jacob even realizes it's Leah. The Bible says, when the morning came, there was Leah. Nice, Jacob. Real nice. Incredible irony here. Jacob, whose name means deceiver, is deceived. What goes around comes around. And you know, the other thought I had, soap operas have nothing on some of these Bible stories. Many of you remember what happens next. Jacob agrees to work another seven years for Laban if Laban gives him Rachel right right away to be a second wife, in addition to Leah. The Bible says Jacob finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife, and so Jacob consummated that marriage too, and the Bible tells us Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Now, often when this passage is taught, the focus is primarily on Jacob and Rachel. They are in love. They have the deal all set. Jacob works for dad for seven years, and We find ourselves rooting for this young couple in love. And then Laban messes it all up by tricking Jacob to marry Leah instead. Boo, Laban, how could you? But then Jacob loves Rachel so much he agrees to another seven years of work. He loves her that much. Aww. Who is often forgotten in this story? Who is the real victim here? Not Jacob, not Rachel, certainly not Laban. Who's the devastated victim in the story, really? Yeah, it's Leah. All but forgotten in the romance and intrigue surrounding Jacob and Rachel. What must, have, what must it have been like for this girl, for Leah, to wake up the morning after her wedding night and see the shocked, disappointed, angry look on her husband's face when he realized she wasn't her sister, Rachel. When it became crystal clear, he preferred Rachel. How awful was it for Leah when Jacob finished the week with her while looking forward to being with her more beautiful younger sister the following week? ouch doesn't even begin to describe that kind of pain, does it? We know her pain was deep. It lasted at least through four births for Leah. The names of her first three sons all lament the fact that her husband didn't love her. Not like Rachel. It's not until her fourth son is born, Judah, that Leah decides and is able to start praising God. She's that crushed in her helpless attempt to earn even conditional love from her husband Jacob. Later, she even has to bribe Rachel for Rachel's permission to spend the night with her own husband. Leah finds Jacob and has to say to him, You must sleep with me. I have hired you. Ouch! Doesn't even begin to describe that kind of pain, does it? And through it all, Leah must have felt forgotten, unloved, worthless, lonely. Her deep need to be loved as she was, hopelessly unfulfilled. But God didn't forget Leah and God didn't leave her unloved. And His love for Leah was unconditional. The Bible, says, the Bible says all it took for God to open Leah's womb, bless her with children, all it took was one look from God when God saw Leah was unloved. And so God loved her unconditionally. Leah ends up giving birth to six of the twelve tribes of Israel. She had more than double the children Rachel had. And what might be my favorite part of all, demonstrating God's unconditional love for Leah... One of Leah's boys, Levi. Levi's descendants would include Moses and Aaron and the priests serving in God's tabernacle and later his temple. And another of Leah's boys, his name was Judah. One of Judah's descendants, maybe you've heard of him, would one day die on a cross and save his people from their sins. Jesus is from his house, the house of Judah and Leah. And I hope, at least I picture one day, if not already, the joy, Leah, and feel in heaven. She was able to watch history unfold and watching her great-great-great-grandkids, her descendants, Moses and Aaron and Jesus. God notices those unloved by the world. He notices those who are made to feel unloved. He notices when ouch doesn't even begin to describe that kind of pain. He's there. He comes running unconditionally when we're burned and hurting by conditional love. The question this morning is, do we trust that? God loves you. No strings attached. He loves you. Period. Yes, I know. God commands we be obedient. In Paul's words in the very next chapter in Romans, the next chapter, the unconditional love of God, God's grace, does not give us license to just keep sinning. In James' words, faith without works is dead. But the importance of obedience has nothing to do with God's unconditional love. Rather, it's out of that love that He wants us to obey. For our sake and for the sake of those through our loving obedience, see God, see and know and experience through us that God's love is indeed unconditional. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we ever thought about obeying God, before we ever knew there was a God, He had already died for us so we could be with Him forever. God's love is not conditioned on our performance or prayer or works Anything we could possibly do. He loves us. He loves you just because He does. Warts and all. One leg or two. Period. Can I have it? Amen. There are no conditions on this deal. God's not sitting there with a computer up in the sky with a smite button waiting for us to mess up. <laughs> God didn't say He would die for my sins if I first stopped sinning. He died for me so I would want to stop doing the sinful things I was doing, so that I would do all I could. So help me, God, and He promises He will, to obey Him. The Christian life is not characterized by perfection. Praise God. The Christian life is characterized by an all-out, so help us, God, battle against our own sinful nature. And when we step into that battle, God Himself promises to step in with us and give us what we need. Now, a word about God's judgment. God's judgment can be another hurdle for overcoming all doubt that God's love is unconditional. Unfortunately, we sometimes have this view that God doesn't love those he judges or will judge even on the last day. Where does it say that? I can't find it. In my opinion, C.S. Lewis gives us a very helpful view, a corrective view of God, judgment, hell, and those inside hell, when Lewis describes the door to hell being locked from the inside. Those inside hell have also been given the opportunity to choose God to accept His unconditional love, and they said, no. And in my opinion, it breaks God's great heart in two rushes Him when people say no to His love. Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with Me. The picture of God's judgment is no different. It's not one of God gleefully hurling, protesting people against their will into eternal fire and damnation. Rather, Even God's judgment reveals God as relentlessly pursuing people out of His overwhelming love, pleading with them to accept His amazing grace, His unconditional love. God is about knocking on doors to people's hearts, banging on them, weeping, pleading. I love you. I love you. Oh, I love you so much. Please open the door and let me in. I'm not going to break it down. I love you so much to respect your choice and your opinion. Please, Open the door. Please, I love you. Please, open the door. And you'll keep on running after people and keep on banging on doors until the last possible moment when they slam the door and lock it in His face, even the door to hell. And I think the Bible presents a picture of a sobbing, weeping, heartbroken God who honors their choice. But He certainly isn't glad about it. I don't know where we get that idea from. The door to hell is locked from the inside. God's love is unconditional. Do you trust that God loves you unconditionally? If so, let him in. Let him in deep. Open the door. If you've got it open, maybe you only have it open a crack. Throw that thing wide open. Accept his unconditional love, his love that loves you just because, that loves you just as you are. God believes in you, warts and all, even if no one else does. God believes in you even if you don't believe in Him. God believes in you even if you don't believe in you. It doesn't matter at all who you are or what you've done or haven't done. If God was a health insurance plan, He'd be one that covers all pre-existing conditions. Doesn't matter what you look like, doesn't matter who you are or are not. Doesn't matter whether you're gifted or talented or whatever. He loves you in or despite any circumstance you don't have to measure up to earn God's love. Jesus already did all of the measuring up and because he did, we do too. God loves us as We are. In the skit this morning, we saw Nathan struggling with confidence. Confidence that anyone loves him. Confidence that he somehow measures up. We saw Nathan doubting that he's loved as he is. With God, that pressure is off. It's non-existent. As far as God is concerned, you measure up to his love. We all do because he loves us as we are. You say, oh, pastor, but he couldn't possibly love me. You have no idea about me, about my struggles, about what I've done, or about what I'm doing, what I'm into. You have no idea. He couldn't possibly love me. I'm too broken, too unlovable, too ugly, too... Just ask anyone. If you looked into my heart, Pastor, you have no idea. God couldn't possibly love me. You're right. I don't have much idea, if any, about many of you, but God does. God does. He knows it all. He knows what no one else does. He knows what you're keeping secret. He knows the blackest part of the blackest spot in your heart. He knows it all. And you know what? He loves you anyway. Completely, deeply. In fact, He loves you because of those things. Because he, Oh, He wants to help. He loves you as you are, struggles and all, no matter what. You can bet your life on it because He gave His life on it. God loves you as you are. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the one who died said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I love you. How can we respond to that kind of love? Maybe love them back? And I'm cheating a bit. We're not supposed to get here until later in the series, but... But I understand how Jesus can't even talk about loving God without also talking about loving others. So why should I try? So how can we respond to God's unconditional love? We can love Him back and we can find someone the world only loves conditionally. Find someone who is unloved, cast aside, left for dead, declared worthless by the world. Find someone who is struggling with feeling that anyone, least of all God, could possibly love them. Find that person And love them. And don't just tell them, I love you. Show them. Show them you love them. And if you can't do that, if we can't do that, if we don't really, truly love them, well, you can't fake it. Set a method presupposing you really do care. And if you really don't care, I wonder if, again, maybe it's because we don't yet know and trust completely that God loves us as we are. Because it's only when we trust we are loved as we are that we can love others as they are. And if we're not loving others as they are, I wonder if it's because we don't trust that God loves us unconditionally and so we have nothing to pass on. Love others as yourself, God says. So maybe the first person you need to love unconditionally is you. Not in a selfish, prideful, me-first way, but secure in knowing that you are made in the image of God himself and that no less than Almighty God loves you as you are. Right now, head over heels in love with you before we can love others as ourselves, we need to be convinced, as Paul was, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, before we can love others, we need to know there ain't nothing know-how that can separate us from God's love. Amen? He loves us no matter what. He loves us unconditionally. Wow, that's also from Romans. I was taken aback by something this week during my study. The book of Romans is known for its theology. And I was astounded when I looked anew this week how much Romans talks about love. And that really shouldn't surprise anyone, I guess. Theology is, of course, the study of God. And since John tells us that God is love, if we study Him, we study love. I'll end this morning with a short story. Many of you know it. I've shared it with you before. While on his deathbed, the great theologian Karl Barth was being interviewed by a reporter. I recall reading once that she was a college student. Dr. Barth was one of the most brilliant and complex intellectuals of the 20th and maybe any century, this brother in Christ. He wrote volume after massive volume. On the meaning of life and faith. And the reporter asked an impossible question. One that might even seem rude. If you're an author, you'll understand. She asked him, Dr. Barth, can you just sum up what you've said in all those volumes? And the great, in, the great intellectual thought for only a moment... And then he said, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. So far, we've seen that God loves us in the beginning, God loves us in the pain. And God loves us as we are. Next week, we'll bring the cross into sharper focus because it's at the cross where we see that God loves us all the way. I hope you'll join us for that. I hope you're here. I know I will be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us first. Thank you for loving us even before we were born, even as you were shaping us in our mother's womb. Thank you for loving us, no strings attached. Help us, Father, to feel deeply from you and from Christian brothers and sisters especially your unconditional love. Help us to feel it fully and deeply in a way that regenerates in us that same love of you and others. Remove any hurdle, any obstacle, anything that gets in the way, Father, of us feeling and knowing that you indeed unconditionally love us. Take it away, please. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said. Amen. Amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction? God's good words, His blessing. Hero O West Bowles. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. So help us, God. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you soon. God bless you all.